The crazy thing about this battle is the only way to win is to surrender. The only way to live is to die. It's, it's to make that admission we've been resisting for years and say, I'm never going to be able to fix it. Hey, this is Mark Whitlock, one of the guys here at the Pirate Monk Podcast. We had snow in Tennessee, and if you've paid attention to folks who live in the Deep South, you know that it's not snow, it's ice, and it's sleet, and it's all sorts of other wicked stuff that comes down uh, that makes our streets like uh, a skating rink. We also don't have all the equipment that those in uh, more snowy climates have to clear our streets because uh, we don't have that many days. So it shuts everything down. So we ended up canceling our podcast recording. So today we have uh, an old recording. This is from 2013. Uh, as you have heard on the podcast in the past, when Nate meets a guy and starts working with a guy, they'll often go for walks all around downtown Franklin. And this is a proverbial walk with me and Nate. And we decided to, instead of go for walks, we'd sit down in front of microphones and talk about it. So maybe you'd hear some of what he does with uh, the guys uh, on his walks. So today we're going to take a look at step one in the 12-step process. This is a brand new, never heard recording. So whether you're getting started for the first time in your path to recovery or you're getting started for the 101st time, uh, these are excellent reminders and an excellent outlook on how we should walk uh, at the beginning of the recovery movement. So here's Nate. So what happens when two men begin to talk about the important stuff of life beyond oh, technology and sports scores and movie quotes? What happens when they finally hang the masks up in the costume closet and they break down the walls and turn them into paving stones? Well, you get two men who go out for a walk. Hi, my name is Mark Whitlock and I am here with Nate Larkin. This is an unscripted conversation between two men who long for more transparency and gospel transformation. Two men who are on a journey to freedom and who long for recovery. Now, Nate, you have been walking around, literally, around yeah. the town of Franklin for years uh, with men in their journeys. We'll talk about things that I got in bits and pieces over the years. And maybe we can assemble some of those bits and pieces a little bit to make them easier uh, to transmit to the next guy. This is going to be an unscripted conversation. Yeah. We don't know where we have this no. <laughs> is going to go. <laughs> we have no clue, but we're going to have a good time along the way. Mm -hmm. Now, Nate, last week you and I had a chance to go out for a walk. Oh, yeah. And I enjoyed it. When along your journey did you notice that this idea of walking was powerful? I think when my first, you know, I got... Uh, I entered this whole world of recovery through 12-step recovery, which in itself is ironic because I grew up in the church and I grew up in a part of the church where 12-step recovery is bad. And, and so God used folks who, most of whom did not even pretend to be Christian, although a great many of them were, um, to open doors and windows on the gospel that I had never seen, bring me coaching that I had never gotten, bring me hope where I'd lost hope entirely. Uh, I remember, you know, those early conversations with my first friend, a sponsor, is what they call it in 12-step recovery. And, um, you know, it wasn't 
a, a formal counseling session where I'm sitting on a couch looking at a guy in an easy chair. I'd done that before. Okay. Um, it was uh, – I, I, it's amazing. We had some of our best conversations either walking or in the car. We're, uh, we're headed in the same direction, uh, but we're kind of looking ahead. We're looking around. For somehow, for some reason, it seemed easier for me to be um, honest and to dig deep that way. And so I followed his lead. And later on, when I started passing on what he was giving to me to other guys, uh, sometimes we'd do it sitting at a table at Starbucks across the table. But I found that when it came time to really dig deep, especially when a guy had an admission to make that he hadn't made to anybody else ever. It seemed easier to make that to the air, you know, with a guy beside him than it was to say it to his face and watch for the reaction and do all of that kind of thing. Well, we're not walking today. No. Uh, but I do hope that <laughs> sitting here in these chairs uh, around this table behind these mics, we can uh, reach that level of transparency and reach that level uh, of honesty as we uh, walk together figuratively. Mm-hmm. Uh, Nate, I, I'm a little nervous. Um, you mentioned your background, uh, you growing up in your faith tradition mm-hmm. and how um, oddly 12 Steps was looked upon. I'll never forget uh, my dad being in town. Uh, we were grilling in the backyard and mm-hmm. uh, I had just recorded a radio broadcast with someone and he recommended that parents take their teenage kids to an open AA meeting, sit in the back and kind of watch things and watch for the consequences of actions and watch how uh, life can can take turns a little bit. And I'd share that with my dad and asked him what he thought uh, because our oldest at the time was becoming a teenager. Mm -hmm. uh, He was ashen. He didn't know what to think uh, of of Mm -hmm. that suggestion. And I remember uh, there was a place where I went frequently and next door to it was... Uh, an AA office, and there was the window display, and there were the people coming in and out. Right, of it. yeah. And I yeah, just felt yeah. very uncomfortable uh, because of the unknown. I, d- I didn't know yeah. uh, what they were doing there or, or what their lives were about. Uh, mm-hmm. And so now I come to this, and I don't fully understand the idea of, of recovery. And so I'm grateful for the, our chance to talk together. Mm-hmm. Let me read the first step, and then I want you to to paraphrase it. Yeah, sure. The first step from the classic 1939 version of the Alcoholics Anonymous Big Book reads, We admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable. How, how, how would you paraphrase that? Yeah. You know, we finally admitted that our best efforts were never going to be enough to stop the behavior, not permanently. And... um that the consequences of that inability were disastrous. They were uncontained. They were affecting every other sector of our life. Hmm. You know, one of the things I found interesting, Nate, about this is that, uh, let me ask you, why is this worded in the past tense? Well, for one thing, um, they're talking from a position of, the, you know, the steps are written from a position of freedom. One of the great objections that great many Christians have to 12-step recovery is this idea that a person will stand up at a meeting on a weekly basis and say, hey, I'm Nate and I'm an alcoholic. A lot of Christians find that deeply offensive. My dad did. And I think that's a semantic difference. there's, There's a misunderstanding, I think, a miscommunication as to what those alcoholics are saying. 
They're not saying that I'm an active alcoholic, that I have no freedom now, that I have no life, that I'm just destined forever um, to drink. No. Um, The 12 steps were written from a position of freedom where my freedom of choice has been restored and I now um, have been given this gift of the ability to walk free of the obsession to drink and I never have to drink again. But in order to get here, I had to make some crucial admissions. I had to put down some very cherished beliefs. And I think that's a very, very Christian um, idea. And, and it's only sensible that it is because the 12-step recovery came out of a Christian atmosphere. It was guided by believers. Granted, Bill W., Bill Wilson, who started 12-Step Recovery, and Dr. Bob, uh, his uh, closest friend, were brand new believers who didn't have a deep theological understanding, but they were, gui- they were, they were guided by experienced believers. And um, so there's fascinating research on the early days of AA, um, and it began as a Bible study. Um, it always began, the early meetings began with a devotion out of a popular devotional guide called the Upper Room. Um, so they did a devotion at the beginning of, oh yeah, at the beginning of every meeting. Um, fascinating book written by kind of the self-appointed historian of AA, a fellow named Dick B. who lives in Arizona. I don't know if Dick's still with us, but a remarkable guy. Wrote a great book called um, The Good Book and the Big Book. Uh, where he puts together for those of us, and it's helpful for those of us who came from this world in which we were told that twelve-step recovery is sub-Christian or anti-Christian. Now, the big book—that's Alcoholics Anonymous's foundational principle. Right? Yeah, yeah. The first book that came out is called Alcoholics Anonymous, big fat book uh, with thirty-eight personal stories in the end, testimonials, uh, and Bill's story in the beginning and a testimonial from a doctor, and then a basic description of the path of recovery. And that's what launched this whole deal. Many years later, uh, quite a few years later, in the 50s, Bill wrote another book, which is one of my very favorites, and we'll probably refer to it from time to time during our conversations. It's called The Twelve and Twelve, The Twelve Steps and the Twelve Traditions. And it's a more mature explanation uh, explication of the principles of recovery in many places tied to familiar biblical passages biblical themes i kind of derailed you a little bit when you were talking about the big book yeah and the good book yeah yeah what struck you as you, as you read that well um you know i came to recognize you know i felt like such an abject failure going to a 12-step recovery meeting i i, I now my story i'm not an alcoholic um, I go to AA meetings all the time. I've never spoken at one because it's not my meeting. I go to open meetings. I sit in the back. I listen. Um, you know, the only requirement for membership in, in AA is a desire to stop drinking, and I don't have that desire. So I, uh, <laughs> so I, I can't, I can't be a member. But I, you know, but I don't, I don't drink to excess. I don't have a problem with it. I have a huge problem with um, lust. Uh, illicit sex. It ravaged my life for years. Pornography that just t- 
took over and took me places I never intended to go. So I, you know, the guy who thought he never would be unfaithful to his wife was unfaithful to his wife on many, many occasions. And, you know, it's just this devastating thing. So um, I only... So I wound up going to a 12-step meeting for sex addicts. If you can think of anything, you know, more shameful, Mm. only because I had no other option. It was my only hope to um, salvage a marriage that was, you know, firmly on the rocks. And, um, And but then to walk in and sit in that room and um it was one of the most profound spiritual experiences of my life to sit in that room and and uh you know as i've said many times i came out of that first meeting just furious that i had spent a lifetime in church and had never been in a room that safe i'd never heard honesty like that i'd i'd never heard uh kindness i'd never felt empathy the way i felt it in that room i never saw humility like i'd seen it in that room heck i'd never heard jesus like i heard him in that room in the mouths of a bunch of samaritans who didn't even seem to know his proper name they kept referring to him as a higher power um so that was a starting place for me and then i realized i i do believe at this point i i firmly believe that god has ordained 12-step recovery, uh, to reach to rescue uh, sick, broken, and hurting people who would never step inside a church. Many of them have stories of religious abuse uh, that would prevent them ever from going inside a church. Uh, But 12-step recovery becomes a side door back into the church. I was not aware of how huge the 12-step recovery subculture was until I got into it. Um, there are, here in Nashville alone, more than 300 AA meetings a week. Really? And I'm convinced that on a weekly basis, there is more pastoral care being done uh, by addicts and 12-step groups than in all the churches combined. Hmm. You know, that, that's a bold statement. Yeah, I, I, but I'll tell you what, you can't go any place I've not been able to go any place in the country where I can't find at least an AA meeting. And it was in 12-step recovery that I, you know, I'd gotten a lot of preaching, and I'd done a lot of preaching. I'd gotten a lot of teaching, and I'd done a lot of teaching. I, I had all kinds of instruction. What I'd never gotten in 42 years on the planet as a Christian, growing up in a Christian home, what I'd never gotten was coaching. Not coaching from a peer, not somebody who would walk beside me, and, um, you know, without prettying it up, tackle all the difficult questions, the practical questions, not the intellectual questions, but the hard questions, and teach me the basic skills of life. Um, I, I desperately needed that, that help. And God was kind enough to bring me to a place where I, I finally got it. You know, my major impression of the 12 steps comes from the media yeah because uh, i wasn't around it growing up so it came from television and, and yeah all of the jokes made about it there and so when i read the first step the first time it just it just sounded so hopeless oh yeah i'm glad to know that it's so full of hope but we have to get there <laughs> step one is the most difficult step because you have to give up 
all other hope to get there. You know, Jesus said, until a seed falls into the ground and dies, it abides alone. But if it dies, then it brings forth much fruit. The Christian life begins um, with this admission that I'm a sinner. Um, I need a Savior. I cannot save myself. I am in a hopeless situation, right? Right. Um, Until I allow a power greater than myself to save me, I'm doomed to be my own Savior. And I can do that as long as I can keep functioning this delusion that I actually can save myself, that somehow by self-improvement, by some kind of moral merit, I can make my life work. Um, You can't become a Christian until you realize and accept the fact that, that you're busted, you're broken. You don't have the resources. Well, what is true of this, the, of salvation is also true of this uh, journey of progressive sanctification, um, this healing journey. Um, I believe that, um, you know, Christians, you know, we Christians get to walk in a righteousness that's not our own, Right. This, this, uh, what Luther called an alien righteousness. It's, it's Christ's righteousness, which is imputed to us. When God sees us, um, He doesn't hold our sin to our account. Our sin is placed on the account of Christ, and all the righteousness of Christ is credited to us. Right? Right. That's a wonderful yes. thing. And so, and that's quite apart from our performance. Which, by the way. This was not explained to me very clearly as I was growing up in church because I grew up in a, in a holiness tradition that was very performance-based. Intellectually, we assented to the truth that, that Christ's righteousness was ours, but on a practical basis, we really believed and communicated effectively to one another that it was vitally important that we build and maintain and protect this righteousness. You know, um, you know we sang Amazing Grace, Um, but uh, there was not a lot of grace to go around because we believed that um, when you sinned, you fell out of grace. You had to climb back in somehow, which meant that you had all the grace you needed unless you needed it. Uh, If you needed grace, you were pretty much screwed. I always felt growing up that my standing before God depended upon my moral state at that moment. If I was in sin, and I somehow had defined sin in narrow enough categories. That <laughs> sure. <laughs> yeah. Isn't that, isn't that interesting? Yeah. <laughs> that, that I could be sin. If I, you know, if I hadn't masturbated in a week, <laughs> then I wasn't sinning. Congratulations. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Congratulations. Now, never mind, you know, Jesus paid attention to... Uh, you know, motivations of the heart, you know. Jesus took on the Pharisees one time who actually thought that because um, they were refraining from the outward actions of lust and they weren't committing adultery, all that kind of stuff, they really thought that they were not sinning. But Jesus looked at him and went, really? (laughs) You know, if you've looked at a woman with lust in your heart, you are guilty of adultery. Yeah. So anyway... This is the toughest thing. When I go walking with a guy for the first time, um, it's usually because uh, he's been hit by the train. Something has happened. 
he's been caught, uh, maybe with disastrous consequences. He might be sleeping on the couch. He might be out of the house. He might have lost his job. He might have been arrested. Oh, let's let's bring it down to brass tacks. Yeah. Because yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm one of those guys sleeping on the couch. Okay. All right. I was fired a number of years ago, and I've been fired a few more times since then. Mm-hmm. I make stupid decisions. Uh, first time I used my corporate credit card uh, without permission for personal matters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Did not reconcile yeah, yeah. it fast enough, and they yeah, had yeah, no yeah. choice but to fire me. Uh, and then I've made some other dumb decisions on the job and haven't been reliable because I've been reeling from the shame and the guilt of getting fired and the problems of mm-hmm. losing both my parents and massive moves yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and other losses in life. I don't know how to handle the grief process. And so now right. I'm, yeah. Yeah. I'm sleeping on the couch because my yeah. wife can't trust me because it's come to light yeah, that yeah, I yeah. have shaded the truth and lied outright and covered up and hidden yeah. tons and tons and tons of things related to our financial life because I just didn't want her to know mm-hmm. what a horrible financial manager is. Yeah. Now look, you know, I, I didn't know how to deal with this. I've mm-hmm. walked with Christ since I was 14. I've spent the bulk of my career in ministry. I'm a good guy, however you define that. I mean, I don't drink, I don't smoke, I don't chew. I don't know what to do with this. I don't know how to get to where I need to get. Yeah, yeah. So I'm one of these guys who covers everything up. What do I need to do? Yeah, and I'm saying congratulations. <laughs> Thank God. That's me. <laughs> you know, I don't think the Christian life begins really until we reach this point. Those of us who were who were compliant, who were good performers, who really wanted to do it right, and you're one That's of those me. guys. Oh yeah. <laughs> um, some of us can go quite a ways under our own steam, but we can only do it um, in the end by. Uh, we have to cover up our failures because failure is fatal, right? right. Failure disqualifies you. It disqualifies you from ministry. Um, it, you know, if you're a Christian man, a Christian dad, all that kind of stuff, right? Throws everything. Mm-hmm. So you have what <clears throat> failure is inevitable, but failure is also unacceptable. So you've got to cover it up, and you learn to lie. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the core um, skill in recovery is learning how to be honest. And it's the most difficult for those of us who've been professional Christians (laughs) to learn. I had no idea how deeply and instinctively dishonest I was until I got into an atmosphere that values honesty above all other things. And a place where there's absolutely no penalty for being wrong. Okay. <laughs> I grew up in a church where there was always a penalty for being wrong, for doing wrong. Um, somehow we, there was this grace disconnect, right? Um, and in these 12-step rooms, I'll tell you what, you can go to AA for 30 years um, and not stop drinking, and they won't kick you out. As long as you or have a desire to stop drinking and keep coming back, it's always open. And it's that kind of um, grace that allows men and women, after the first slip, and most people have a slip. Some have a lot of slips. I had, I slipped, uh, I was a champion slipper for my first three years in recovery. 
because this whole thing was so foreign to me. It was like learning to ski. Uh, for a guy who had never been on skis, and my instincts were all in the wrong direction. Uh, and, you know, and I was so conditioned to cover myself up with shame at the slip, to cover it up, to lie about it, to hide it. It took me a long time to trust that there was absolutely no penalty for the slip, that what they wanted from me, all they wanted from me was authenticity and honesty. And that was the only door to freedom. So come on, talk about it. You know, like skiing, to be good at skiing, yeah. you have to lean downhill. You have to change your center of gravity yeah, yeah, so yeah. that you can glide. Yeah, 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 yeah. But all of us want to kind of lean back. We're afraid of that. And we fall down over and over and over again. It's it's a great analogy for what you're talking about here in recovery. You're leaning into yeah, yeah. honesty. Now, that brings us back to the first step. Yeah. So, we always hear in the media, you know, the first step to solving a problem is admitting you have one. Which mm-hmm. is, what was it like for you? I mean, so you said you got caught by Allie. What yeah. was it like for you to actually tell the truth in the first place? Well, you know, for me, it was, uh, you know, I got busted by my wife. Uh, she caught me looking at porn on the computer. Um, now, actually, that was just the tip of the iceberg. Allie had been aware that I had a problem with porn because I had let her know about it early in our marriage in a, in a moment of desperation and inspiration after a men's retreat. Um, and for a while, I had made her my accountability partner, which in my opinion now, in retrospect, is a bad idea. Uh, I personally, I believe that wives are entitled to the truth from their husbands, and Allie and I have a deal where she always gets an honest answer to a direct and, question. And vice versa. Wives yeah. deserve to right, have exactly. that relationship with their husbands, too. Uh, however, I, I don't think that a wife is built uh, emotionally to be uh, a man's accountability partner in all matters sexual. For us, it, there's always going to be a daily issue. And for a wife, it's difficult for her not to take that personally, not to interpret my attraction, however fleeting or momentary, to another female as an, uh, some kind of statement about a deficiency on her part, mm-hmm. right? So it's best for me, to I've found now, to, to have men in my life who I can talk frankly with on a daily basis uh, and early in recovery, sometimes on an hourly basis. Uh, and my wife is entitled to every update she wants, but she's now wise enough to know that she doesn't she doesn't want to wade into the thick of that battle. Um, for her, it's best. She gets a great deal of comfort out of knowing that I have real friends, real brothers who know on a daily basis where I am, not just in my behavior, but in my thinking and feeling. Uh, and because I've learned to be honest with them, she knows that she uh, will get honest, get honesty from me. Although I got to tell you, early on in recovery, and we had some really rocky years, uh, as uh, you know, because Allie, when I got into recovery, Allie didn't trust me any farther than she could throw me, nor should she have. She'd seen me turn over so many new leaves that the fact that I'd found another leaf didn't mean anything. She'd never seen me stick to anything in my life. Huh. And I'd never stuck to anything. The amazing thing is recovery stuck to me. Um, But Allie was understandably skeptical. She took her time. Uh, But during those early years, there were times, you know, she'd ask me a question and I'd give her an answer and then I'd have to come back five minutes later and say, "Uh, I need a rewind on that conversation. 
the answer I gave you wasn't completely honest. Here's the honest answer. Now that's just absolutely terrifying. I mean, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. exactly where I am. You know, I've you tell the truth, but you didn't tell the whole truth, so you got to go back. I mean, walk me into that moment. What was it like when you went back to Ali and had to clarify? Well, obviously, she I mean, she would have she kind of had this ambivalent reaction. One, she'd be pissed that I'd lied to her. On the other hand, she'd be grateful that I'd straightened it out. Um. I think what she saw was there was sincere effort on my part to become a more honest person. And it was really revealing to me to find out, I mean, to notice how my first instinct was to give her the question, uh, give her the answer I thought she wanted or the one that would have the fewest negative consequences. Yep. (laughs) And that, I mean, that was just, I just did that instinctively. And I was very good at it. I was such a good liar uh, and so good at hiding that, you know, I did this successfully for 20 years. And the fact that, uh, you know, the fact that Allie trusts me today implicitly is a testament uh, to the grace of God and the power and efficacy of this journey that we're talking about. And the journey of her trust started when you admitted that you had yeah. a problem when you were truthful enough to actually say what you needed to say? I, I, I think you do step one in layers. Okay. I, you have to come. Here's the thing about the 12 steps. Some people think you start at step one, you go to step 12, and you're done. No, that's, that's, not, not, that's how it not how it works. Okay. You, go to step, you start at step one, you go to step 12, and then you go back to step one. And you go to step 12, and you go back to step... And sometimes, if you've had a slip... You'll call your you'll call your closest friend. You'll say, "I've had a slip," and he'll say, "All right, let's go back to step one." Okay. Um, if if you've had a slip, it's because you somehow thought you could manage this thing. Um, you know, the the media says, you know, it starts when you admit you have your pro- you have a problem. It's really a little bit deeper than that. Okay. It starts when you admit you have a problem that you can never fix. Um, I knew I had a problem for years. But I, I thought that I was this close to fixing it. You know, I had most of the pieces to the puzzle. I was just looking for the final piece. Um, I, you know, when I went into the 12-step room and, and I went to the meeting and I, and I encountered people who had my story. They were telling my story, but they'd been sexually sober for 10 years. Um, my first conclusion was these guys have the missing information. They've got the silver bullet. They've got that final piece I've been looking for. I'm here to do research. I'm, to get, I'm here to get the rest of the information. And when I have the information, I won't have to come to the meetings anymore. I can go okay. back. What, I thought that I wanted sexual sobriety. That's not what I wanted. What I really wanted was moral self-sufficiency. I wanted to fix it, and I wanted to fix it on my own. I was willing to come and listen to get the information. Um, I was also what the alcoholics would call a periodic drunk. And for those of us, they'll say in AA that it's easier for a low-bottom drunk to get sober than a high-bottom drunk. And by what that means is the guy who's sleeping in the gutter who's been drunk for 30 years, when he finally gets it, he goes, man, I, you know, I, I got to put the plug in the jug. I can't take another drink. I'll be back in the gutter. 
it's tougher for the guy who only gets drunk on weekends because he can stay sober for five. He can stay away from it for five days. So he believes that he actually has the capacity to stay away from it. You know, he can quit. He's quit a thousand times. Uh, he just can't stay quit. Well, that was me. I'd had, you know, periods of abstinence, not sobriety, but abstinence. It would come after, you know, a week at youth camp when I was younger or um, a powerful spiritual experience of one kind, some, one kind or another or sometimes a disastrous acting out where I crossed a line I hadn't crossed before. So, you know, I go into an adult bookstore for the first time, scares the crap out of me because I thought I would never go into one, right? So I make the resolution, never again. And I can stay away from it for a while and then I get dragged back over the line. And then it's, you know, hire a hooker. I will never hire a hooker. But I have the my first experience with a prostitute. Scares the crap out of me. I make a fresh resolution. I will never... You know, see? So it's those periods of... Um, abstinence from the behavior that helped to fuel the illusion that I actually can control it. And at the same time, damns us all with all the more vehemently when we finally have a slip because the voice in our head, the voice of the accuser, the voice (laughs) says, says, oh, you're lower than low. You, You have the power to stop and you didn't. You can stop. You stopped for a week. You stopped for 30 days. You have the power to stop, and look what you did. And that, that voice, that shaming voice is the real enemy. Um, We think that our enemy is guilt now. The enemy is shame. And I'm sure that in the weeks ahead we'll talk an awful lot about shame. We will. So the guy that I'm walking with for the first time, typically, he's hoping that he's found the guy who has the secret information. (laughs) Right <laughs> to get the education and get right. the information. Right, I'm going to give him the information so that he can fix it, so that he can go back to his life of isolation, because all active addicts are isolated. Even if they're around people, there is this secret place that only they know, where only they go. Um, and you know, and and so that brass ring of moral self sufficiency is there. He's going to be able to do it by by self-propulsion, right? If he just can find the secret information. And so one of my first jobs is to help convince this guy that um, not only has a pro- does he have a problem, he has a problem that if my experience and the experience of the thousands of guys I've met and the millions of other guys out there holds true, he is never going to be able to fix on his own. There is freedom, But in order to get to freedom, he's going to have to give up this treasured hope that he's going to be able to get there by himself. Um, Yes, I can white-knuckle sexual sobriety for a while. But eventually, my resolution is going to fade. I'm going to get tired. I'm going to get afraid. I'm going to get hungry. I'm going to get angry. I'm going to lose it. I'm going to, I'm going to do something stupid, and I'm going to be back over the line. If I look back honestly over my life, I have to admit that that's the pattern. And it's insane to think that that pattern is going to change. I've been looking for the silver bullet for years. I have to give up the search for the silver bullet. 
That's part one of step one. Admit that we're powerless. Um, that in the end, this thing is bigger than me. That's a humbling. It feels like dying to say it. Um, but the crazy thing about this battle is the only way to win is to surrender. The only way to live is to die. It's, it's to make that admission we've been resisting for years and say, I'm never going to be able to fix it. And the second part of, you know, a classic step one, uh, a 12-step step one is we're powerless over X. Uh, for me, it's powerless over lust. For other guys, it's powerless over work or it's powerless over um, rage or it's powerless over alcohol or drugs or whatever. Powerless over religion for Pete's sake. Huh. Um, and my life has become unmanageable. Now, I am powerless over some things that don't destroy my life. Um, I breathe, for example. I'm powerless over that. But uh, breathing doesn't make my life unmanageable. That phone you hear in the background is a guy calling me. <laughs> Thank God for phone someone, calls. Someone to walk with you. Yeah, yeah. And you to walk with them. Um, but, but what makes it destructive is if, if these two elements are present, I'm powerless over it, and it makes my life unmanageable. Addictions persist because we minimize their effect. We tell ourselves that, yes, okay, I got this crazy part of my life, but it's only a part of my life, and I can compartmentalize it. Yes, it affects me, but it only affects a limited part of my life. It, it doesn't impact my family. It really, other people aren't paying a price for it. It takes a lot of self-delusion to keep that fantasy going. We admit it in step one. We come to understand it as we travel further down the line, and we admit it at deeper and deeper levels. The truth is that this addiction affects everything and everyone. I've, you know, I, I have eventually come to understand, and I've had to come back around to recognize over and over again that for me— this is the big hole in the wall, the breach in the wall. Um, my sexual sobriety, that's the, that is that thorn in the flesh for me, right? Um, that, for me, sexual sobriety is the hinge mm -hmm. on which everything else turns. Mm -hmm. And if I let that go, it affects my whole life. And it's astonishing to me how when I pay attention to that, when I, uh, not that, you know, the sexual sin is my only sin. If anything, this journey of recovery has helped me understand I'm far worse than I thought I was, right? Right. And loved far more than I ever imagined I was loved. Hmm. Um, so I'm a, I'm a bigger – I now see myself, you know, I want to compete with Paul for um, the title of chief of sinners, okay? Um, so my awareness of my sin has grown, but with it, not my desperation, because I know that that sin doesn't define me. You know, the greater my awareness of my sin, the greater my vision of the cross, the greater my salvation, more wonderful my salvation, the greater my joy, the greater my humility, right? The quality of my Christian life improves as I recognize on deeper and deeper levels, you know, <laughs> how much God loves me, how messed up I really am, and how little it matters to God. 
and how great his resources to rescue me from the consequences of that brokenness. But I've come to see that, you know, over time, it, it, see, here's amazing. I pay attention to that, huh. and every other part of my life improves. It's phenomenal. Huh. I get in recovery, my health improves. <laughs> my finances improve. Up until last year, which was uh, particularly disastrous, my income increased every year from my first my first 14 years in recovery. Astonishing. Well, that partly is due to the fact that I was spending hundreds of thousands of dollars on porn and hookers that now wasn't going that way. <laughs> but, 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 but also I was... But, but your income yeah, kept increasing. Yeah, but also I was paying... So my expenses decreased, but my income increased as well because I was back in my own life. As an active addict, I could only... You know, I wasn't fully present anywhere. Not in business, certainly not at home, not in conversations, not with my kids. And when you shut down that second operating system, when you close down the secret life, the, the private quiet struggle, and just live in one life and are fully present wherever you are, well, now you're bringing the full weight of who you are to where you are. And the results are better. So uh, a couple questions as we talk about this. Yeah. There's a guy like me standing over what feels like a precipice. Yeah. He feels like that if he tells the truth, uh, he's he's just going to start falling. He's going to yeah. be like Don Draper at the beginning of the Mad Men yeah. opening of the yeah, television. Sure he's going to fall and fall and fall and fall and fall. Never hits bottom. just keeps falling. Mm -hmm. Help that guy. What does he need to do to prepare to take the step, to prepare to tell the truth? This is where it's so helpful. Um to um, to get in a group, to find some other people, to find somebody. What gave me hope and courage to tell the truth, I mean, I feel like I was pushed. I mean, eventually I jumped because I was running out of room, right? But I felt like, you know, that first step, you know, beginning to admit that I was powerless and that my life had become unmanageable, it was like, yeah, I'm going to fall. I'm going to fall forever. There's never going to be a bottom. You know, life is over. You know, just cash it in. But I'd look around the room at a 12-step meeting, and nowadays I can look around the room at a Samson meeting, and, um, and I would see guys who said, you know, life began for me after that jump. They had stories to tell about how it used to be, what happened, and what it's like now. Um, and I could look at them, and because they could tell my story in their own words, and because their current life was a life I wanted, I could find a little bit of hope. And that's what really also what I try to share with another. It's a gift I try to give to another guy on the first walk around the block. Uh, I talk about the darkness and then talk about the present without trying to, you know, I, my life today is not perfect, but it is good. Mm -hmm. And good is good enough. And good is wonderful, by the way. Uh, boring is good. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, there's this saying in 12-step recovery, you know, in, in AA, you go to the AA rooms. My worst day sober is better than my best day drunk. Huh. And I could say that, you know, uh, that's absolutely the truth for me. So find some other people. Find somebody who's, who's jumped and, uh, you know, go to meetings. Uh, 
uh, find another uh, person who has experienced the same brokenness that you, that that is yours or something similar. So find somebody to jump with, and and, and now, now tangibly telling the truth is this: some, finding somebody to tell the truth to. Is it? Oh yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. A total stranger? Is it writing it down? Yes. What does this truth telling look like? Yeah, yeah. Well, um, you know, there are all kinds of ways to do step one, um, and actually, the way we've reformulated, uh, we've done a. It's interesting when Bill W. first wrote the twelve steps, there were six. Okay. Okay. And uh, later, uh, with the feedback from a wonderful Episcopal. A clergyman named Sam Shoemaker, he broke it down further into 12. Uh, that gave me license to reformulate it for the Samson Society into seven. That more biblical number. <laughs> uh, yeah. uh, but it, it describes the same journey, right? Uh, but this, you know, learning to tell the truth in the beginning, uh, a classic step one, um, what you're going to do is you're going to uh, tell the truth about your past behavior, so a step one is is written typically. Early days of AA, um, and I owe this uh, insight to Dick B. Most AAers don't even know this, but in the early days of AA, um, your sponsor, first of all, your sponsor was the guy who paid Whoa. your hospital bill and detox. Oh, wow. He then took you through the 12 steps typically in a couple of days. And you couldn't go to your first meeting until you'd done the 12 steps and they gave you a card. That's how you got in. Whoa. Yeah. That's that's how it was, hardcore, early on. When, by the way, their uh, success rate was around 80%. Okay. Um, nowadays, um, you know, you'll go in, that's the kind of say step zero is showing up. Okay. okay. <laughs> uh, and then you get yourself a sponsor, which, interestingly, is not included in the formal 12 steps, but they'll tell you you can't get sober without a sponsor. And so it's like zero it's right. point B. And in Samson, we'll say, you know, it's great to come to meetings, but meetings will never cut it for you. Uh, you can't uh, – Samson's not about the meetings. We have meetings, but Samson lives between the meetings. And, it, and you know, to really make progress, you're going to have to find a Silas. And eventually, you're going to have to be a Silas. So you're going to have to find this guy this flesh and blood person who you're going to share your story with in all its ugly detail. And he'll help you by sharing his. Um, and uh, typically you write that out. Um, I like to have guys, uh, the, the, the way I, uh, my one of my sponsors helped me was he had me break my life down into five-year sections. Okay. And then uh, in the beginning, just to write down... Um, all sexual memories, not every episode, because by the time you got to my 20s, I mean, I'd been writing for the rest of my life, but, uh, but key episodes and all categories, right? Um, uh, to write it down and to focus on the shameful stuff. And then eventually to sit down with your sponsor or your Silas and uh, read it to them, share it, share it with them. I remember that when I did my first first step, uh, I met my sponsor in a park, uh, and we went to a lonely bench, you know, where there was no uh, hope of being overheard, right? 
and I pull out these pages and my hands are shaking and I, you know, and he goes, um, before we get started, I want you to tell me what you didn't write down. Oh. And I said, what do you mean? He said, the thing you didn't write down. I said, what, what makes you think I didn't write anything down? He goes, there's always something you didn't write down. He goes, that's where the gold is. So what didn't you write down? So um, I told him what I didn't write down. He said, good, okay, now read me the rest of it. And, um, and it, you know, and, and the truth is, you know, that there's always going to be this shameful voice that says, you got to hide that. You can't say that. They're not, no, nobody can handle that. You got to hide that. That is, that's, that's the voice that drives us into the, you know, it's that same voice that drove Adam and Eve into the underbrush when God came in the cool of the day after they'd sinned for the daily walk. You notice he came. The churches I was raised in would say, he wouldn't come, they'd sinned. They were separated from, God wouldn't come for the walk. But that's not how the story goes. He always comes because he loves us. He's our father. He showed up. He showed up on time. They're the ones who hid. And there was this voice that said, you can't let him see. You have to cover up. That same voice that had made Adam and Eve, who'd enjoyed this wonderful intimacy with one another, make, create these ridiculous clothes so that they could hide from each other. Uh, those two who, who before had been naked and not ashamed were now ashamed even to be seen by each other. And this path of recovery is this journey away from shame and learning as John says in John chapter 1, to walk in the light. When we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. Real fellowship. Not this, you know, pancake breakfast brotherhood. This, uh, you know, this towel snapping, punchy on the arm, how you doing, brother baloney. But real brotherhood. And in that brotherhood... <laughs> In that process of walking together, Christ walks with us as he promised he would. When two or three are gathered in my name, I will be with them. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all unrighteousness. That's how the process works. I hope you enjoyed this departure from the normal 
Pirate Monk podcast as Nate and I had a chance to uh, proverbially go for a walk and talk about step one. Nate's going to come back in just a minute and pray for all of us as we take the first leap to four step one or take a third or fourth or fifth or sixth leap uh, getting started with step one. So stick around uh, for Nate to pray for us in a minute. As always, you can find our show notes at piratemonkpodcast.com. And this is episode 167. So piratemonkpodcast.com slash 0167. You can find resources there, uh, links to download free copies of the the books from Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, links to purchase the other books we we talked about, links to the Bible references uh, that were discussed on the program as well. Uh, Coming up the final week of January, a man by the name of Wes Yoder will be with us. Wes has been a part of a movement called New Canaan Society, and Wes will be talking about the need for men to walk together and what transparency looks like. And uh, he's a great storyteller, and uh, you're going to enjoy having him on the podcast. He'll be live in studio with us. And as always, we'd love to have you communicate with us. Please leave a message. Scroll to the bottom of the page. You'll find the way to leave a voicemail for us at piratemonkpodcast.com. If you go to the show notes at piratemonkpodcast.com slash 0167, you'll also see a telephone number where you can leave uh, a voicemail or you can obviously leave a text comment there and we will um, respond to that in a future episode. So grateful to have you on board with us and here is Nate praying for all of us in step one. Lord, I thank you for my brother and I thank you that like the good shepherd you are, you have brought him to this point of crisis to save his life. Thank you, Lord, that you understand his weakness, that you know that he's but dust. You know how fragile he is. You know how afraid he is. You know how proud he is. You know how sick he is. And he doesn't even know how sick he is. Thank you, Lord, for your compassion for him, your compassion for me, your compassion for all of us, and your passion to reconstitute the family of God, to bring us together. Thank you that my brother's sickness and weakness has brought him to a point where his only realistic chance, uh, the only choice that offers hope, is to trust not just Christ, but the body of Christ, to reach out to another person and um, to face the awful truth. Lord, I know that it feels like dying. To actually open that door again to that closet where so many things are hidden. Um, To remember things he's vowed to forget. Uh, to, um, To accept weakness where he's tried for so long to be strong and where at times he's felt strong. Uh, to give up the hope that he's ever going to be able to do this on his own in exchange for a hope that somehow a power out there greater than himself can do for him what he can never do for himself. Lord, uh, I know that faith is a gift. It's not something we can manufacture. It's only something we can grasp. I pray, God, that you would now give a special impartation of faith to my brother is listening. Um, with it, Lord, the courage 
uh, to accept what is. I pray for direction that you'd give to them in very short order the trustworthy person with whom he can be completely honest. I ask, Lord, that you give them the courage to move toward that conversation, not to uh, hang on the edge, on the perimeter, and wait to be pushed. Pray, Father, um, in the meantime, for a peace that passes understanding, not a peace that allows him um, to move back into passivity or to go back in the opposite direction. I pray for a holy discomfort um, that drives him to find release and relief in a direction he's never gone before. But I pray that below that, Lord, there would be this peace that passes understanding. Thank you, Lord, for the surrender that precedes victory, uh, for the death that precedes life. We look forward to where you're going to take our brother. We're going to take us together. In Jesus' name, amen.